Micah, thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. It's good to have you all with us today. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here. And if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 1 as we continue through the prologue during this time of Advent. And you'll see up on the screen behind me the title of today's final passage in the prologue, A Coming Down Kind of God. Now, that's not an original title for me. That's actually a quote that my favorite professor in seminary would say over and over again. I've mentioned him before. His name was Gary Galliotti. Uh, he was my Old Testament and Hebrew professor. And uh, when you sat in his class, it was a lecture, but it was also a sermon at the same time. And as we're going through the Old Testament, each time there was a display of the grace of Yahweh, he would often say this, we have a coming down kind of God. And then he'd usually say, aren't you glad? Amen, right? We have a coming down kind of God. And you can see this here in the passage behind me as well from the end of Matthew's birth narrative in chapter 1. This is a quote of Isaiah 7, of course. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I could have just quoted Isaiah 7, but I love Matthew's quotation because he translates Emmanuel for us. God with us. That is the beauty of the first advent. That's why we celebrate Christmas and oh, what a great Savior we have. Also on the screens, you will see the big idea for today's passage, kind of the, the sermon in a sentence. Today, in the climatic part of John's prologue, we are presented with the facts surrounding our Savior's glorious incarnation. Let's pray one more time. Father, we do thank you for the time of worship we've had already today. Thank you for the guests and visitors we have with us this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And I pray, Lord, as we've prayed through the week, that you would speak to us today, that your presence would be among us, that those who know you, your children, would grow in our faith and love for you and what you did in demonstrating your glory through the, the coming down and taking on human flesh to rescue us, Lord. And for those in this room who don't know you, even our children, Lord God, that you would plant seeds, that you would water seeds, that you would bring about a harvest of faith and help us all to realize that Christianity was never about a religion. It's about a rescue mission, Lord. Save us, grow us. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're gonna pick up this morning in verse 14 of, uh, of John chapter one. So let's read that one verse alone today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I just chose one verse, this verse on purpose, because this is the climatic verse in the entire prologue of John. This is what he's been building up to through the first 13 verses. And we, we have kind of a doctrine alert, if you will. Uh, when it comes to orthodoxy, when it comes to the, the systematic theology, the doctrines that we hold true, 
that many have died for in the centuries past, this is the primary verse that helps us to understand the person of Jesus Christ, the, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. In fact, look with me on the screen again. This is an excerpt from the Nicene Creed, one of our great historical confessions as the people of God, coming out of the Nicene Council in 325 AD. And this is the section about Jesus. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made, for us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. In some ways, a review of where we've been so far in John chapter 1. But that is incredible. For me, that's very nostalgic. We said that every week growing up in both the Catholic and Lutheran church, part of our liturgy. But this verse is so important when it comes to Jesus Christ. And let's look and, and we'll see why. When you look at the verse, it begins with the word. John returns to this one he's been talking about now for 13 verses. And we've come to know who this word is. This is the eternal word of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, eternal, God himself, distinct from the Father, creator of all things. And as we learned last week, the source of all light and life and the key to salvation and becoming a child of God. And he now tells us that this eternal one, this God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. The word became indicates for us that he's doing something for the first time that he's never done, taking on human flesh. But the word flesh is a very significant word in this passage. This is because he could have chosen, and we would have expected him to choose, other words to describe this. John could have easily said that he became man. He could have easily said that he took on a bodily form, but he doesn't. He actually chooses a very crude and vulgar word. And if you are familiar with Paul's letters, this is a favorite word of Paul to describe the the sinfulness of humanity, the sinfulness and the corrupt aspects of what it means to be a human being. Why would John choose this word over the others. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is in John's day, there was at work already a false Christian cult, a false Christian cult called docetism. And docetism was based on uh, the, the philosophy of Plato. Who's ever heard of Plato? One of the great Greek philosophers. And, and Plato's philosophy permeated all of Greek culture to the, and really the basis of it, the very simple aspect of it that's important for us here today is that the physical is really bad, the spiritual is really good, and the spiritual uh, is contaminated by the physical. So, so this false Christian cult comes from this idea that, oh wait, Jesus could not have truly come in the flesh or been a human because then the spiritual, his God part, would have been contaminated. So these false uh, heretics kept the two uh, separate. So essentially, Jesus was really, in a way, uh, schizophrenic. There was this spiritual component called Christ and this physical man, Jesus. Sometimes they were together, but like on the cross, they weren't. The Christ went back up to heaven, and it was just this man that died. And then the Christ comes back down for the resurrection. Ridiculous. And so scholars believe John's choosing this word to make it very clear that Jesus Christ was completely human, using a word just like this. 
Uh, as we, another reason for that, too, is just think of this. Think of Hebrews. For those of you who are familiar with that great letter, Jesus came and identified in every way with what it means to be human, being tempted in every way that we are tempted so that now as Christians, as we go to him in prayer, we know we have a Savior who's identified with every aspect of our weakness and yet was without sin. What a Savior we have. What a great word for us that makes it very clear of the humanity of Jesus. It's, it's, it's kind of incredible if you think about it. Today, the skeptics and the non-Christians and our opponents, they, they doubt his deity Back then, nobody had any trouble with his deity. It was his humanity that they struggled to accept in this Greek culture because of, again, Plato and, and all that uh, preceded uh, the gospel. So very important. So the word became flesh, and then this next phrase, look at it with me. This is beautiful. Dwelt among us. We read it in the English, and it's like, okay, that's, that's cool. But it's the Greek words that are really important here because what it literally means is Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. He pitched his tent. Who likes camping? We all like camping, right? Well, that's not what this is talking about. John's not a a fan of camping. What he wants to bring to mind is the wilderness, the exodus, the, the pitching of the tabernacle that Moses built and constructed. What was the significance of the tent in the wilderness? It was for the first time God lived among his people in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. That's what John wants us to think about. And if we had time, we could do an incredible parallel study with Exodus chapters 33 and 34. We're not going to, uh, but I encourage you to do that. It would be a great study because that's the backdrop of this passage is the, second, the, the first exodus because what's happening here with the word becoming flesh is the second exodus. The second exodus where Jesus leads us into the promised land of being a child of God, of going to heaven and having eternal life. And just an incredible description for John that, that this word came and pitched his tent among us. And as we continue, and we have seen his glory. The we, of course, is referring to John and the other apostles. But the word seen there in some translations, and I like this word better, is beheld. We beheld his glory. And one of the things I learned about John is in all of his writings, he only used that particular word, beheld, for eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. He uses other words when it comes to visions and other things. But he saves this word for the eyewitness. We saw him. Of course, in 1 John 1, you'll see that. Again, a great passage about the eyewitness account of Jesus. But what I want us to see here, and this is probably the the greatest nugget that has come out of my time of study this week, as we consider the glory of Jesus Christ, how does John describe the glory in the next clause? Look what it says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. From is the key word in that passage. That tells us the glory of Jesus Christ in the first advent is based on his humility, is based on his incarnation, is based on what Ralph and Lena read from Philippians chapter 2. His glory is completely connected with humility. And that's important for us. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a few moments. But I want us to see something else here, too, that's so significant. Up until now, we've been presented with these, the first and second persons of the triune Godhead. 
the Father has been referred to as God, and the Son has been referred to as the Word. But right here in verse 14, uh, there's so many great things going on that we kind of miss it, but we can't. John makes a title switch. He goes from Word God to what will carry through the rest of his account, Father, Son. It's incredible. And this is so important to John in the presentation of his entire account, this beautiful, eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son, especially when we get to chapters 14 through 17, where we see what it means to have a seat at God's table, to be in his family, because what salvation is for John is that those of us who are children of God get brought right dab smack into the middle of this beautiful, eternal relationship between Father and Son. That's what it means to be a Christian. So important moving forward. And we'll see that again throughout the gospel account this next year uh, for those of you who are with us here at TCBR. Beautiful passage. And then uh, the, the other thing he tells us about the glory of Jesus Christ is his glory is full of grace and truth. When I was a kid, my grandfather, Grandpa Richard, uh, owned a Santa Claus suit. And this is back when I still believed in Santa Claus. Whoops, got little kids here. They're not listening anyways. But anyways, so we get emails about that later. Anyways, he would come in. He would come in with a big sack full of toys. And I, I, you know, I thought it was Santa. I didn't know it was Grandpa. As I got older, I started to wonder and then eventually figured it out. But the the big sack of toys, he would bring that in over his shoulder. And the the bag was kind of like his glory. And what was inside were the gifts. And and what's inside of that glory bag of Jesus Christ is grace and truth, the tent poles of the gospel. We'll talk more about that in the next section. A few application points uh, before we move on, though. Oh, by the way, first and foremost, look at this slide up here. When it comes to John's experience of the glory of Jesus Christ, I realized this week that out of all the apostles, even Paul, He experienced the most glory of Jesus Christ. Look at all the things that he was in attendance for, if you will. John is one of only two apostles that was connected to the baptism of Jesus. We'll find out here, uh, I think next week, that John and Andrew were actually disciples of John the Baptist before Jesus. So he's associated with the baptism. He was one of only three apostles that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration He's the only apostle we know of that was at the foot of the cross while Jesus was, was dying for our sins. He's one of only two apostles that we know went to the empty tomb along with Peter. Of course, five and six, most of the apostles were there for the initial resurrection appearance in the upper room, as well as the ascension in Acts 1. And then I threw this in there just because he was the only apostle that was there for the apocalypse. Op- apocalyptic vision in the book of Revelation. So again, just an incredible experience that he had personally with the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, where I really want to to bring this application part home is this, and uh, Ralph did a great job mentioning this before he read from Philippians 2. But since the glory of Jesus Christ in the first advent is connected completely to his humility and coming down and becoming man, then for us as his children, our glorifying of Jesus Christ as our motive for everything we do is also connected to humility. For those of you who are fans of the Protestant Reformation, I am one of the five solas uh, that we hold to, the glory of God 
alone. Why we do what we do. So, so think about that as husband, as wife, as parents, as uh, students, as your, you know, in your job place, as an evangelistic witness. Everything that God has called us to do, all these missionary opportunities, we need to glorify Jesus as well. And that's always going to be in humility. It's always going to be in dying to self, overcoming pride, and doing all for the glory of God. So important for us uh, this morning. In fact, let's look at the, the two verses that preceded what Ralph and Lena read here during the Advent lighting. This comes again from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then, of course, right into the beautiful hymn of Jesus Christ, our great example. Uh, so that's the call we have as well. The second thing I want to point to here in terms of application is I mentioned this with the tabernacle. But think of the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. If you bring biblical theology in, which I love to do, and kind of study the entire Bible as one long meta-narrative, you look for these different themes, there's so many to choose from, and it's a lot of fun. And one of them is the idea of God with us. If you look at the different manifestations of God with us, they get better as you move through time, right? The tabernacle was incredible, right? The tent in the wilderness. But then what do we see? Solomon's temple. And then what do we see today? Jesus Christ, right? God with us, but now in the form of the God-man, the Word made flesh. And is that where God stopped? Was Jesus Christ the best manifestation of God with us? No, there's evidence of it in this very room today. Holy Spirit dwelt believers, those of us who are children of God. We have the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity in us, of course, Pentecost. But is that it? Is that the best? No, there's one more to come, heaven, where we are with God for all eternity in his presence. So I love that. God with us, getting better as we move through redemptive history. And yet, and as, as we just said, the best is yet to come. All right, let's move on to the second part of this passage, verses 15 through 18. And by the way, just going back to that God with us concept, it also points all the way back to the beginning. God with us was how it was supposed to be. Remember Adam and Eve walking hand in hand with the Lord? And so we see what sin has done and what it's taken God to get us, what he's done to get us back to being with him, Emmanuel. So the second section I've entitled, His Surpassing Greatness, his surpassing greatness. And think again in terms of the book of Hebrews. Someday when we get to the letter of Hebrews, the theme of it is already decided. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And that's very similar to what John is doing for us here in this, the, the remaining verses of the prologue. In fact, look at this, this, these two verses from Hebrews, the very first two verses from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, scripture just lines up so perfectly. Jesus is better. So let's read uh, the remaining verses from the prologue, starting or picking back up in verse 15. John bore witness about him. That's the word. That's the son. 
and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So first thing we see in verse 15, again, is an interruption to the great word poem. We saw this last week. And so for now for the second time, John interrupts his great poem about uh, the word, the divine logos, to give us some historical uh, prose narrative about John the Baptist. And so he did it last week in verses six through eight. He does it again, and this is truly a parenthetical. And John, uh, John the, the uh, apostle is doing two things here. First of all, he's going back to connect John, that we learned last week in verses six through eight. He wants us to know that the light and life he talked about is the same person as the word made flesh as the Son of God, just in case there was any confusion. The second thing he's doing is, as the prologue, the introduction of the gospel is coming to an end, he's anticipating what's coming next, which is the, the narrative of John the Baptist, which we'll look at next week. So he's anticipating that coming up. But truly, verse 14, which we've already seen, connects with verse 16. So if you look at the very end of verse 14, we were just told that the glory of the Son is full of grace and truth, picking up in verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And what a great description of the gospel we have there. And so if we think in terms of Jesus is better, his surpassing excellence, Jesus is better than John the Baptist in his ministry. Jesus is better also in what uh, existed before. In terms of what salvation was and the way to life before him, he is so much better. And the new covenant is so much more incredible. And the main reason is right here what we see in verse 16. Again, think of that bag of, of glory. Think of that bag of glory and what is inside of it. And we see here grace Upon grace. Some very important words in verse 16. First of all, one of the things I love about John, we'll see this from time to time in his gospel, is he includes us in the story. He includes believers of all time in the story. So if you look at that very first thing he says in verse 16, we have all received. He's talking about himself, he's talking about believers of his day, and that truth, because of the, again, the tense it's in, goes all throughout history, even to this moment in Greer, South Carolina. If you are born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have received not just any grace, grace upon grace from Jesus Christ. And, and you see the combination of the words grace and received, and we see right there, we're reminded like we are throughout the New Testament, that salvation is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's not about works, uh, like some of the false versions of Christianity still claim this day, it is a gift to be received, to be received by our glorious Savior. What a great God we have. And if you look at the grace upon grace, that's an incredible phrase there. And what, it, uh, what he's talking about there, just imagine if you see grace sitting there for you to take, and you take the grace, a new one pops right back up where it was. It's endless. New grace upon grace just keeps coming. It doesn't exhaust. It's inexhaustible. The supply is endless. And that is the grace that we have. 
if you're in Christ. We, we all love that verse, God's mercy and grace is renewed every morning. It's so true. Uh, even as believers, we still sin each day. But the grace that is ours supplied uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ never runs out. Never runs out. Now, that doesn't give us license to go and sin, right? We, sh- we need to fight it, resist it, and grow. But when we do, how encouraging that after we have gotten up off our knees, repenting of the sin, it's as if that sin we just did never happened. That's grace. And that's the salvation we have through Jesus Christ. Again, what a great Savior we have. What a, what a wonderful Savior we have. Now, continuing in verse 17, again, he's talking about surpassing excellence of Jesus Christ, of Emmanuel. And he tells us, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And as I told you, uh, if you peel back this passage, right behind it is the Exodus, right? He's, he wants us to think in terms of Moses and Moses' ministry and the giving of the law and, and the time in the wilderness. And, and what he's simply saying here is, is you consider the word law, you're like, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean the rigors of the law? Does, does that mean the first five books of the Old Testament? And the way John's using it here is simply a catch-all word for the entire Old Covenant, for the entire Old Covenant. And so he's saying, for the law was given through Moses, and the implication is this grace and truth is superior, is better than what existed before it. And grace and truth we have from Jesus Christ. Look at this quote from F.F. F. Bruce. He helps us to understand what John's saying here. He says, Christ displaces the law of Moses as the focus of divine revelation and the way to life. The gospel emphasizes in a series of presentations that the new order fulfills and surpasses and replaces the old. And the presentations that that, uh, Dr. Bruce is referring to there are actually what's coming up in the next few chapters of John. Think about chapters 2, 3, and 4. A better wine, a better temple, a better birth, a better messenger, and a better well. So it's over and over, he wants us to see that. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The gospel is better. And of course, the gospel had to be built upon the foundation of Moses and the law, but it indeed is now the future and the most perfected way to salvation and to be with God. Grace and truth. And what is grace? It's interesting that here in this passage, John uses the word grace four times, He never uses it again in the rest of his gospel account. Now, he describes it over and over, but he actually never uses that word. And uh, one definition for grace is this, that uh, literally grace is the cause of great joy, the cause of great joy. And it always carries it with the idea that it's undeserved. So something that causes great undeserved joy. And Leon Morris uh, defines the word the way he uses it here as this, God's provision for our spiritual need by sending his son to be our savior. And truth, of course, is a great theme of John's. He'll use that word several times throughout, uh, talking about truth, light, life. Uh, Think of John 14, 6, when it comes to how John uses truth, that Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. But these two words right here, grace and truth, like I said, are the tent poles of the gospel. That's what they, they make the gospel good news. And that's exactly what he's referring to. And they came through Jesus Christ. Before we leave this verse, uh, notice here, we've been mentioning Jesus' name throughout the preaching of the prologue, 
But this is the first time in these 18 verses that John actually identifies the proper name of the word, of the divine logos, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is a Bible geek thing, uh, really just fun for me and maybe a few of you, but John uses the word Jesus 237 times in his gospel. It is by far his favorite name, but more than a quarter of all the usages of the name Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. Finally, verse 18, the last verse we'll look at this morning, and this is a very important way to end the prologue, and let me show you why. He says, no one has ever seen God. Now, uh, the scholars I studied all pretty much said the same thing, that when John says that, again, think in terms of Exodus being in the backdrop, he wants us to recall one incident where someone came really close to seeing the glory of God, and that was Moses. You guys remember Mount Sinai? Uh, What is Moses? It was right after the intercession where, where Moses actually intercedes for the people of Israel. God's ready to wipe them out. And Moses said, show me your glory. And God's like, well, if I do that, you're going to die. But I can do this. You go hide in this cave. I'm going to go by. And when I tell you, you look, and you can see my back. And then, like, Moses' face glowed for 40 days or something, and they had to ask him to cover his face up just from seeing his back. So so John wants us to think about that and, and think of that. Now connect it to here. Again, the surpassing excellence of Jesus Christ here. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You guys remember that, that old King James word? We saw it a minute ago in the Nicene Creed, begotten, right? Begotten, not made. I wish it was still in this version that I use, the ESV, but it's not. But the word only there, and also back up in 14, the only son and the only God, that's actually the word begotten. So some of your translations might say the only begotten son or the, the only begotten God. And the word only, only begotten, is a word that John chooses intentionally, just like he used the the verb was uh, back in the beginning of the prologue. He uses it intentionally to make it very clear that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world was unlike anything that had ever happened and in no way part of creation, right? He is God. And the word only begotten really just simply means unique, one of a kind. A one-of-a-kind Savior we have. But what's incredible here is this phrase, only begotten God. So whereas in verse 1, John begins with a very clear declaration that, that this one Jesus is God. He ends the prologue in the same way. The only God. The only begotten God. Who is at the Father's bosom, the Father's side? He has made the Father known. And even in our passage today, it began with this declaration that the word became flesh, 100% man, and it ends with a declaration that he is 100% God. That is our Savior. That is who was born on Christmas Day. And that final phrase, he has made him known, is his mission. I even toyed with the idea of this possibly being the theme of our study of John, because the idea of being known is, is apparent throughout one of his, his number one missions, again, was to come and make the Father known and to bring us through his work on the cross, through his resurrection, and through salvation, to bring us into the middle of that wonderful relationship in the midst of the triune God, this wonderful work of Jesus Christ. And, and the tense there of known means that he succeeded. 
He completed his mission, and that mission continues all the way to today and even beyond. So as we finish here, just a few more application points for us. First, again, I just want to come back to this idea about grace upon grace. For those of you who are in Christ, just be encouraged. The reality is we're all still a mess, right? Until he comes back or we go home and until that day where we all get our new bodies and are with him, we're gonna be in the sinful flesh. Now, obviously, we should be growing and becoming more like Christ over time, Uh, but we're about grace here. And if we're gonna err, we're gonna err on the side of grace, uh, and we have to, as, as a church, have that one another coming alongside mindset uh, that when, when someone falls, hey, we're there to help pick them back up. We're going to err on the side of grace. And so be encouraged. As you go out of here today and you blow it at some point or tomorrow, uh, come before your Savior, ask forgiveness, but then get up as if it never happened. And what I call this in counseling is learning to have faith in grace. That's one of the biggest trouble, biggest problems we have as Christians. We don't know how to have faith in this grace, in this good news. We don't believe it. We act like atheists when we sin, and we shouldn't. Believe in the grace. Again, no license to sin, but such a great provision for us when we do grace upon grace. And when I learned about that grace upon grace, of course, I thought like National Geographic and learning about how sharks' teeth, you know, there's like several rows. When one's gone, the next one pops up. Uh, maybe it doesn't work as well, but still, it's, that's this grace we have. It's an endless supply. It's incredible. How many of you, uh, when you were a kid, you went and got a candy bar out of the vending machine and like two fell instead of one? It's like, yes, that's, that's it. Grace upon grace. Next one up. Uh, the second thing for us and this is how I want to end today, and, and I know that the reality is there may be someone here who don't know Christ. And, uh, and I mention that because the first Advent, we, we can't leave Advent without acknowledging this. The first Advent anticipates the second Advent. And whereas the glory of Jesus Christ in the first Advent is associated with his humility in becoming man, that's not going to be the case in the second advent. The second advent, the glory of Jesus Christ is associated with him coming as the conquering king. And if you don't know him by then, you will be destroyed. You will be, and he will be glorified through that. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let another day go by if you have doubts as to where you stand with God. Come and talk to me today or any day, uh, to Robert, to anyone that you recognize in our church. Um, Even if you don't live around here, call us, email us. This is why we do what we do. It is so important. One final passage to read, and this is actually the the end of the great Christ hymn. Uh, Ralph stopped at verse 8. This is verses 9 through 11, which brings to mind that second advent, which could happen any day, by the way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we end today lighting the Christ candle in the hopes and reminder that there's a second advent. And that's the one I'm excited about.
and I hope you are as well, although some of you might be scared to death. If that's the case, come and talk to us. I'm going to go ahead and invite the, uh, the worship team back up as they come to, to finish uh, our time together as a family, uh, worshiping and celebrating, and I'm going to pray here in a moment, but uh, I just want to say on behalf of the Church of Blue Ridge, I hope you all have a wonderful and safe Christmas with your friends and family. I hope you have opportunities to shine the light of Christ uh, in the dark places that may exist amongst some of your family members. Uh, so again, go from here with the full blessing of God and his family of believers here at the Church of Blue Ridge. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for this study. And while in, in one sense it's the end of our Advent sermon series and the end of the prologue, it's just the beginning for us here at the Church of Blue Ridge. How awesome that we get to continue this journey with John's writing uh, throughout the next year. So bless us um, throughout the course of this year as we, as we study this wonderful gospel account. Uh, and I do pray, too, that you would bless us this week as we celebrate your birth together with family and friends. I pray for safety uh, and protection as some travel, and, and whether it's to or from, and as we spend time. Give us opportunity, Lord, as we might uh, spend time with lost family members or friends who don't know you. What a great opportunity to share the gospel of Christ. So I pray that you would give each of us uh, here who are your children uh, an opportunity this Christmas season. Help us, though, to recognize the opportunity and in that moment have the courage to take advantage of the opportunity uh, to share this wonderful story of your divine rescue in Jesus Christ. So again, thank you for this time. And as we continue to worship you now in song, uh, be with us, Lord God. Let us think about what we've just learned and help us to apply it in our lives as your children for your glory. And if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, open their eyes. Let today be the day of salvation that they will be ready for your return when you do come as the conquering and glorious king of the universe to take us home. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.